I don't know about you, but for me, my heart breaks every time I watch the news now. Probably it's been that way for some time. Whether you turn on the TV or open up the internet or look on, on an app and you want to find out what's going on in the world today, for anyone who loves God and loves Christ, it, it just has to break our hearts. Whether it's a whale that dies because of plastic pollution, swallowed all this plastic and died, or it's the way that human beings feel they can treat one another, or it's the sexual revolution that, that has totally flipped upside down what it means to, to be sexual creatures, or whether it's the, the gender confusion that is going to uh, spill over into more and more post-truth, post-postmodern confusion. And if you don't understand what that means, that's the point. It's confusing. There, there's no handle anymore on, on what is right and wrong, what is true and false, what is moral and amoral, what is good and what is evil. And we're seeing every time we turn on the news what that looks like play out before us. It's not that different in the world we live than it would have been in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not that different in the time and place in which we live than it would have been in Jerusalem in the 6th century B.C. God called fire from heaven to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and He called Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to destroy His own house and His own city where He had placed His name because of the sin of the people. All of this, for me, just opens my eyes to this very sobering reality. God is revealing His wrath against this country. On the one hand, we can say that Canada is one of the greatest countries in the world. On the other hand, we can say God is even now revealing His wrath against this country and against the United States and against Europe in this generation, on this day. And I'm afraid that unless there is a revival and mass repentance, we may be in the final days of a millennial dominance by Western powers. For over a thousand years, Europe has been the power of the world. And Europe's power was exported to North America and even Australia a little bit as the British Empire spread and Spain spread and Holland spread. But after more than a thousand years, the dominance of European power might come crashing down in this generation. Like Rome before us, the West might fall in our lifetime. Why do I say this? Because it's biblical fact that God, though He is so patient, he will not put up with our insolent rejection of Him forever. And the more we push Him out, the more He allows Himself to be pushed out, and the more that the Lord allows us to push Him out, and by us I mean the corporate us of the Western powers, 
the more we are handed over to ourselves and we cannot stand under the weight of our own wickedness. Why do I say all of this to you this morning? Because I see Romans 1, 18-32 happening right before our very eyes. Would you open your Bibles to that place? Romans 1, verses 18-32. to And as you're looking for your spot, would you please stand? Before I read this, this is theologically true, no matter when or where you live. This is just theologically true. At the same time, what I want you to see is that it so perfectly describes us. And again, by us, I'm talking about the Western powers. This is a big corporate us. Which we are set apart from the world if we're in the church. But we also do associate, we do identify with Canada, don't we? With North America, with the Western powers. And so in that sense, this describes us. Not in the church, but us in the West. So this is theologically true at all times and all places. And it just happens to be, I would say, with with deep conviction, actually true of the West right now. Which is why my heart is heavy. This is the Word of God. Romans 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, 
murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. These are the words of God. Let's pray. O God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on our country and on our culture. And I I pray that through the church You would bring mass repentance and revival that might stem the tide of Your wrath. Lord, I pray that You would help me today as we take a closer look at what it means that Your wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Even in this generation, I pray that Christ would be magnified and You, O Father, would be glorified and that people would be saved unto eternal life. Maybe even people in this room this morning. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. So today is about wrath. As a pastor, it's not easy to preach about wrath uh, for a couple of reasons. On the one hand, when you study something like wrath, you have to compartmentalize. I have to, I have to think about wrath academically uh, before I can think about it emotionally so that I can be sure that I, that I understand it so that when I preach to you, you're getting the truth. But that's for the study. When you bring a topic like wrath into the congregation, it's filled with emotion for me, for you, because we all have loved ones who have either rejected Christ or, though they don't know it, they're, they're not in Christ. And so this is, this is a charged topic. The wrath of God is serious. And so I want to be sensitive. I, 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 want, I want to acknowledge the, the deep heartache that we carry with us all of the time because of this gospel truth of wrath. On the other hand, I don't want to just dismiss the wrath of God. Uh, I don't want to say, well, you know, the wrath of God is it's a doctrine that we can look at quickly and then get over and and talk about something else and and pretend it doesn't exist and explain it away or apologize for it. I, I cannot and I will not apologize for the wrath of God. And so you see the the dilemma or the tension, at the very least, when we come to something like this. And so my hope is 
to be clear, to be sensitive, and to point to the cross. Because there is a way out from under the wrath of God, and it is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're going to share uh, symbols that remind us of how He has taken the wrath of God off of us. So there is good news for those of us who are in Christ. But we can't rush to the good news. The foundation of the gospel is the hard news, the bad news, the, the devastating news of the sin and rebellion of humanity that merits the wrath of a righteous, perfect God. So that's where we have to start. Last week, we started this by looking at the fact that the wrath of God is coming for a particular people. The wrath of God is coming for those who suppress the truth. And that's a way of summarizing everyone who's unsaved. If you're unsaved, you are suppressing the truth in one way or another. And we, we describe what this, what this means because if the wrath of God is coming for those who suppress the truth, let's not suppress the truth. We suppress the truth when we deny the existence of God. We suppress the truth when we deny the evidence for the existence of God. We suppress the truth when we refuse to thank God for making us, for sustaining us, and as Christians, for saving us. We suppress the truth when we claim to be wise when at the same time we reject God. It doesn't matter how intelligent we are mathematically philosophically, technologically, if we have rejected God. We can claim to be wise in the ways of the world, but we only suppress the truth if at the same time we reject God. And finally, climactically, and as the culmination of all of this, all of these four things will lead to the fifth and ultimate way that we suppress the truth is when we worship the creation rather than the Creator people who do these five things are suppressing the truth and making themselves the object of divine wrath. This week, so last week, for whom is the wrath of God coming? This week, what is the wrath of God? We're going to answer this question in two ways. Uh, the first way, we're going to look at what it means that the wrath of God is revealed the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, Paul says. So we can understand what the wrath of God is if we understand what it means for the wrath of God to be revealed from heaven. And secondly, we're going to ask the question, what does it mean that God gave them up? So what is the wrath of God? We can answer it by looking at the text that I read. On the one hand, the wrath of God is revealed. On the other hand, and they go together. Uh, so... Maybe it's the other side of the coin rather than the other hand. On the other side of the same coin, God gave them up. Let's take a look at the first one. The, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Do you see it there in verse 18? Just take a look at verse 18. I'm going to read it again. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The key word in this verse is the word reveal. How do I know that? Of all those words, how do I pick the word reveal? A second word that might be a close second is 
righteousness and unrighteousness. The way I know that is because of verse 17. Go up to verse 17. We're talking about the Gospel in verse 17. In it, the the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So why is reveal the key word in verse 18? It's because it's the same word in the verse above it. And what Paul is doing is verse 17 and verse 18 are written as total opposites. In and through the Gospel, it's the righteousness of God that is revealed. In verse 18, in a world without the Gospel, it's the wrath of God that is revealed. Through the Gospel, the righteousness. Through, without the Gospel, the wrath. Through the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Without the Gospel, the wrath of God is revealed. So you see how those two go together. So, so here's the thing. As human beings, either the righteousness of God is going to be re- revealed to us through the Gospel, or if we choose to live a life without the Gospel, the wrath of God is going to be revealed. What does it mean to be revealed? The word is apocalypse. So the apocalypse of Jesus Christ is the last book in the Bible. So I could answer the question this way. What does it mean that the righteousness and the wrath of God is going to be revealed? Well, the the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, the biblical apocalypse written down is going to be manifested. It's going to happen. That's not what Paul has in his mind here, though. Paul didn't write Revelation. It hadn't been written by the time he wrote this. The word apocalypse can mean two things. On the one hand, it can mean an uncovering. And we talked about a couple weeks ago, if I give you a gift, you want to, you can have your own little birthday apocalypse by unwrapping it and revealing what's inside. That's a form of apocalypse. Uh, or if I'm in bed and I've got my covers on and Selah comes and rips the covers off me, I've been revealed. That's another apocalypse every morning. <laughs> but that's not the apocalypse here. This apocalypse is the manifestation of. And we, we talk, I can't go back and, and, and redo what I did up in verse 17, but it's this idea that the revelation comes through the manifestation, that, that God works His righteousness into us when we're saved, and we reveal God's righteousness by becoming righteous. And so the same thinking is in Paul's mind here. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. What does that mean? It means the wrath of God, whatever the wrath of God is, we're going to get to that, is manifested from heaven in us. It's, we understand what the wrath of God is because we become the wrath of God. If the righteousness of God is revealed through the Gospel because we become the righteousness of God, We begin to act righteously. We don't just have a righteous position, but we begin to increasingly act righteously. That reveals God's righteousness. We increasingly begin to act like the wrath of God, thus revealing the wrath of God in heaven. Paul then gives us two options. Embrace the truth 
of the gospel and have the righteousness of God manifested in you by faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look on Him more and more. Read the Scriptures. See Christ in the Bible and you will become more like Him. And in that process, God's righteousness will be revealed in you. Or look away from Christ. And the wrath of God will be manifested in you and you will look less and less like Christ. Which means this. The righteousness of God manifested in you. What does that mean? It means that there's an alien righteousness. What I mean by alien is not that it comes from extraterrestrials, but it's outside of us. There is a righteousness that rightly is at home in God. Not in us. But by faith, and through the sacrifice of Christ, as we look on Him, that external righteousness becomes manifest in us. And we become more like Him. So that's if you choose the path of the Gospel. But if you choose the path of wrath, then the wrath of God is manifested in you. And what does that mean? Well, unlike an alien external righteousness becoming your own, a natural depravity exalts itself in your life. What do I mean by that? I mean that you become more and more like who you really are. There's a concept called common grace, which I'll introduce now and becomes really important in the second half. None of us are as wicked as we could be. There's no unsaved person out there who is yet as wicked, as evil as he or she could be. Why? Because if we are, were as wicked and evil as we could be, then the world would be filled with simultaneous murder-suicides. Because the depravity of the, the sinful lost soul is so bad that we would kill whoever's around us and then turn and kill ourselves. So God has prevented the full extent of human sinfulness to express itself by something called common grace. And the wrath of God when it's manifested in you is that God just begins to pull back this common grace and you become more and more like who you really are. It's not that God sends fire from heaven to burn you. It's not that God sends suffering into your life that's externally caused. It's not that God takes pleasure in torturing you. It's that God allows you to increasingly be who you truly are. Now how do I know that? How, how, where am I coming up with this? This transitions us to our second part. So the wrath of God is revealed... That is, it's manifested in those who don't believe. Those who have rejected Christ. Those who have rejected the Gospel. And what I've said is that this is just God pulling back His goodness. Pulling back His grace. Pulling back His common grace. So that we become more and more who we really are. And I get that from verses 24 through 32. And this part if you just take a look here, 
at verse 24, 26, and 28. Look at verse 24. God gave them up. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. Verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. Paul here is trying to explain to us what the wrath of God is. He says it's revealed, it's manifested in us. Uh, It's the opposite of the righteousness of Christ being manifested in us. And it has to do with God giving us up. God giving us up. What does it mean for God to give us up? It just truly means what I said, that God withdraws and let us be more fully ourselves. Wrath does not equal a punitive infliction of pain or suffering that comes to us from a vengeful, evil God. God's not evil. God's not wicked like that. He doesn't take pleasure in in punishing us like that. Rather, the wrath of God is a gradual or an eventual or ultimately a total withdrawal of God from our lives. Let's just remind ourselves of who God is. God is life. What happens when life withdraws from you? God is good. What happens when goodness withdraws from you? God is light. What happens when light withdraws from you? God is just. What happens when justice or any notion of justice withdraws from you? God is truth. What happens when truth withdraws from you? You you see the point here is that when when all of these good things that are God and native to God and and come from only God, when when God says, well, you know, I'm going to pull those things back from you. I'm going to pull myself back from you. All that we're left with is darkness, injustice, death. What happens when God withdraws all of His grace? Not just saving grace, but common grace. You know, the Bible says that God sends the rain on the righteous and the wicked. What if we lived in a world where God gathered all the righteous, that is all the saved people, into Canada and He put all the unsaved people in the United States and He sent only rain on Canada? How long does everyone down in the United States live? if it's filled with all the unrighteous. But no, that's not the way God works. Not yet. Because God sends rain on the righteous and the wicked. And He's scattered us all across every country. And so we all receive this blessing. If you're drawing breath right now, it's because of the common grace of God that is still sustaining your body. What happens when God withdraws that? What does the wrath of God look like then? What I started with is we see the wrath of God in its early stages. Even the collapse of of societies and cultures and empires and civilizations is just a whisper of the totality of God's wrath. Uh, the, The fall of Rome, that was devastating, but he still allowed humanity to persist and continue and bring the next generation into the world. 
So, so we see the, the beginnings of God's wrath now. God is already revealing His wrath from heaven. That is, He's already withdrawing from people groups who have pushed Him to the margins, people who have rejected His gospel and, and rejected His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's already giving us over to ourselves and allowing us to be more and more like who we really are. And again, the we there is a corporate we, a big Western corporate we, not us in the church. But ultimately, this, this is the definition of hell. Hell is not this hot box that God has created so that He can have an eternal torture room where while He is lavishing us with all kinds of goodness in the new heavens and the new earth, He is at the same time taking some sadomasochistic pleasure from punishing people in hell. But hell is a real place. And hell is even sustained by God. But it's a place where God has removed all of His grace and all of His goodness. And everyone who's there, He's permitted them to be fully who they truly are without Him. It's a reality where God's goodness and grace is entirely withheld. It's a reality where the object of God's wrath, wrath is left alone to be entirely and fully itself. And so we come to verses 24 through 32, and what we see here is a description of the initial stages of wrath. If you were to take this picture here and put, put it on an exponential continuum and try to imagine if this kind of living uh, went to its ultimate extreme in its logical conclusion, that's hell. So you can say in a sense that we are living in a form of hell in a fallen world. So I sure hope that you don't feel that this world is your home. Why would we love the things of this world? It's a taste of hell. And so we are radically confused if we would taste of the pleasures of hell and come in here and pretend to worship God. Now having said that, we all still have our flesh, and our flesh is uh, paradoxically drawn to hell. But we've been made obedient from the heart. And so at the center of who we are as Christians, we, we cannot have an uh, unquenching hunger, thirst, and lust for the things of this world, or else it betrays the reality that we're not saved. Let's take a look at these verses. The breakdown, uh, these verses, 24 to 32, can be broken down into three sections. And, and, and it's really simple how I broke this down is Paul starts a new section every time he says that God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. Says it three times, so he has three sections. Paul is trying to do something specific in each section. So you have the first section, which is verses 24 and 25. Then you have the second section, which is verses 26 and 27. Then you have the third section, which is verses 28 to 32. A couple of observations, and we're going to look at these. Look at 
Just look, scan quickly verse, sections 1 and 2. So 24 to 25 and 26 to 27. should be fairly easy for your eyes to run over that text because they're individual paragraphs. These are two separate sections, which is peculiar to me because they're saying almost the same thing. Both of these sections are addressing sexual perversion. That's fascinating to me. And we're going to get into that. Why have two sections on sexual perversion? Why not just one? And why do those two sections come first? And then the third section, which is verses 28 to 32, is sort of a catch-all for everything else. So, so in Paul's mind, he seems to have divided the, the wrath of God when he wants to describe it into three sections. Section one, sexual perversion. Section two, sexual perversion. Section three, every other kind of perversion. Why does he do it that way? That's what we're going to look at for the remainder of our time. Sexual perversion is in these first two sections. Why? I would say for two reasons. One, because sexual perversion is the beginning of God's wrath manifesting itself in those who suppress the truth. You want to identify a people group against whom the wrath of God is being revealed? Take a look at their sexual ethic. Which reveals a lot to me about where we're at in Canada, North America, Europe, and the West. In my short lifetime, it seems that the wrath of God has been revealed increasingly so. Because our sexual confusion has exponentially grown since I was in elementary school. Where would it go in the next 40 years if there's not some kind of mass repentance? Secondly, and we'll get into this in a little bit more detail, Paul front loads his description of the wrath of God on sexual perversion because our sexuality is a thermometer for our spirituality. There's, God created us to be sexual, spiritual creatures, and he created our sexuality to match our spirituality. We're going to talk about that as we unpack these two sections. So those are two reasons. Number one, sexuality are the beginning signs of the wrath of God. Number two, sexuality is it's like that canary in the coal mine. If the canary dies, everybody better get out because you know the air quality is bad. When the sexuality of, of a, a culture or society starts to turn, it's the canary in the coal mine. You know that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. So, so you better come to terms with the, the situation and, and repent. Or accept that you are putting yourself voluntarily in the path of the wrath of God. Let's take a look at verses 24 and 25. Section 1. What is the wrath of God? Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
The therefore at the beginning is just taking us back to verse 18 through 23. And he repeats it there, right? Therefore, and then he accentuates what the therefore is there for in verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. So that's a summary of what Paul has already accomplished in verses 19 through 23. So because we've suppressed the truth, rejected God, worshiped creation rather than Creator, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, and the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now, I don't know about you, but this doesn't initially seem like a straight line. Because we worship, the creation, rather than the Creator, we became sexually perverse. That's what it means. The dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. I want you to notice here that there's no mention of homosexuality. I take this to be Paul beginning with heterosexual sexual deviancy. So, we got to be very careful as Christians not to stand on our high horse and point at people struggling with same-sex attraction as if that's the proof of the wrath of God. We'll get to that in a moment, and it is. But before homosexuality, if, if God is working with a canary in the coal mine mentality, He's going to give us some things to alert us of our slide from faithfulness to, to alert us that we've begun to suppress the truth, to alert us that we've begun to worship creation rather than Him, our Creator. He's, he says, the first thing I'm going to do is hand you over to heterosexual deviancies. So what is sexual uh, purity? Heterosexual purity. Well, it's defined for us in Genesis. Therefore, a man, one man, will leave his father and his mother and be, he will cling to his wife and they will become one flesh. So the only view that God has for sex is heterosexual monogamy within a marriage. So what Paul is saying here is marriages are going to begin to break down people are going to start to seek sexual gratification outside of the marriage bed. And then there will be not only adulterous affairs, but there will be uh, sex before marriage. There will be married couples that join together in unholy ways, etc., etc., etc. I don't think I need to go on the whole list. But what... God is saying through Paul here is the first indication that the wrath of God is being revealed is that our devotion to husband or wife will be eroded. Then we get to the second section, verses 26 through 27. For this reason, God gave them up to the dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations to those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
Notice the repetition of the word dishonorable. In verse 24, you have the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. In verse 26, we have the dishonorable passions. And then Paul becomes explicit. He transitions in this second section to homosexuality. And so he says that there's a stage to this. And I think that if we look at the history of our own culture, we see that this is exactly how it happened. First, there was the the breakdown of heterosexuality long before there was the introduction of homosexuality. Women were sexually active with women. Men were sexually active with men. And then the, the really hard part, which I don't want to skip over, but I don't, don't want to dwell on it either. I want to just note it here. Look at the very end of verse 27. And receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What does that mean? Dishonorable passions, sex, heterosexual and homosexual deviancy results in these people receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What is that? Sexually transmitted diseases, HIV, AIDS. I want to be very careful here. Should we have compassion on people who have sexually transmitted diseases? Yes. Even if they got them through sexual immorality? Yes. Nevertheless, here's the truth. If we as a society stayed committed to God's view of sex, there would be no sexual, sexually transmitted diseases. And so young people, those of you who are, are by God's grace still sexually pure, note that. The only way to be sure that you will not receive in yourself the due penalty for your sexual error is to maintain God's view of sex. And if if you are careful to uh, preserve your own body for your spouse, your husband or wife in the future, then you will be free of sexually transmitted diseases unless by some tragedy you contract them some other way through the transmission of blood or some other thing, which does happen. But sexually transmitted diseases are an expression of God's wrath. Should we show compassion to people who have made heterosexual mistakes? Yes. If we are not people of grace, who are we? We're not here to condemn, we're not here to point the finger. We're not here to say, well, you are receiving the wrath of God and all of the consequences of your life are because of mistakes that you have made. Rather, we need to say there is freedom and forgiveness for all sin. Should we uh, be mean-spirited to those who are suffering with same-sex attraction? Does that make sense? For men and women and youth and children of the Gospel, to go out with hate on our lips, condemnation in our speech. 
Especially since what we're told here is that as God gives us over more and more to ourselves as a people group, that, that they are in some ways the victim of a greater societal sin. The people who are struggling with all of these sexual deviancies, whether heterosexual or homosexual, it's because we as a, a greater society have rejected God and God is handing all of us over to become more like ourselves. And this whole, uh, this whole debate about whether or not people could be born uh, gay or not, of course they can be. Of course they are. That's, that's total depravity. And I would go so far as to say that if any one of us thinks that apart from the grace of God, the common grace, and then the saving grace, anything apart from the common grace and the saving grace of God puts us out of reach of homosexual behavior, we haven't understood the Bible. Because what the Bible says is that God gave them up and it starts with heterosexual deviancy and then homosexual deviancy and then all kinds of other deviancies which means apart from the grace of God we're all in this together. So the finger pointing has to end. We need to be people of compassion saying look, you know, it's awful that you're struggling with this. Here's why. And we really need to be praying for our youngest generations. Because in my lifetime, I see how much more the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven. So how much more will the wrath of God have been revealed from heaven unless there is a mass repentance by the time my daughter is my age? So before she's saved, what kind of common grace will be withheld from her? Or her classmates. So this, this high and mighty, uh, better than, than thou attitude cannot be our approach to these things. Our heart has to break because we with clarity see what's going on. In a very real sense, it's not their fault for the symptom it's the fault of the greater society of which we all share, and so it's their fault in this sense, for rejecting God. Now, before I move on, I want you to note I have not once commended homosexual behavior. I've never once commended uh, adultery or heterosexual deviancy, but I have pleaded with you as the church to be compassionate to know that this is the wrath of God. That apart from the grace of God, common grace first and then saving grace, that's us. So let's be ambassadors of grace, ministers of reconciliation to go out into the world not to condemn the world, but to point the world to Christ so that they can come out from under the wrath of God and be saved. Now, why does Paul highlight sexual perversion as the first expression of God's wrath? As I said, humanity is created as sexual, spiritual creatures. And so, a healthy spirituality will result societally in a healthy sexuality. What I mean by that is this. In a community where 
the people are worshiping God, that will be manifested in a realigned, healthy sexuality. Which is why it's so disturbing when there's sexual problems in the church. Because what that tells me is that there's a spiritual problem in the church. That's why it's so disturbing for each individual if that individual finds, a Christian individual finds sexual problems in himself or herself. That is indicating a deeper spiritual problem. You need to understand that sexuality is a thermometer for spirituality. Uh, What do I mean by that? Sex is a picture of God's relationship with humanity. That's why God created sex. It's an object lesson for spirituality. And I know that feels strange and we could giggle if you weren't sort of bound by the peer pressure of the church. Right? Pastor's talking about sex, getting weird. But that's because of our sin. We've made sex shameful. We've made sex funny. We've made it awkward because of our sin. But if you remove all of the sin and we see sex for what it is, sex is an object lesson by which God wants to communicate His relationship with humanity. And this is a profound thing. God has no other relationship like this with any other creature. He does not have a relationship like this with the angels in heaven. Do you know that? Angels are asexual beings, meaning they don't have sex. They do not reproduce sexually. All of the angels were created by God. He spoke every individual angel into existence. That's why when Jesus says that once we graduate to to glory, we'll be like the angels. We won't be having sex anymore because we will be experiencing the fullness of our relationship with God and we won't need the object lesson. How does this object lesson work? Well, to put it bluntly, God is the male partner and humanity is the female partner. God is the active lover and and humanity is, is His bride that receives His love. God pursues us. God loves us. And God consummates His relationship with us. And we receive from Him. Consider these biblical metaphors that the church is the bride of Christ. You can't actually have that metaphor without sex implicit. Brides and bridegrooms come with consummation. That's just a part of the metaphor. So every time we talk about the bride of Christ, we're talking about sex. Think about this one, that salvation is called the new birth. We're being born again. How can we talk about being born again without thinking first about sex? Being born again is is to receive the imperishable seed, which is the Word of God, the Gospel. And the, the seed, the Word of God, the imperishable seed, penetrates our heart and gives us new birth. That takes us to the third. The Word of God is called the imperishable seed. 
Peter talks about it that way. That's a, a reference to sperm. Only sperm is perishable. The Word of God is imperishable. Whereas the seed of a man gives biological life, the, the seed of God, which comes through the imperishable seed, which is the Word, gives eternal life. Man is to woman as God is to humanity, as I said. And the sperm is to the egg as God is to humanity. Let's just take it to a more clinical perspective. You have the egg of a woman coming down a fallopian tube. There's no life in that egg. But there is the potential for life. All the potential for life is there. But if that egg passes down and the cycle comes and passes, that egg leaves the body without consummation. There's no life. But if while that egg is coming down the fallopian tube with all the potential for life and the seed of a man penetrates that egg, it brings to life that which was potential for life and a human being is conceived that's the gospel every human being in this world is like an egg not actually alive spiritually but every lost human being has the potential for eternal life but unless the imperishable seed of the gospel penetrates the heart of that individual at the very end of that cycle, the cycle of that person's life, that individual will receive the full wrath of God. Sex is an object lesson and a profound one for God's relationship with us. And if we can get past all of our immature views of sex influenced by our sinfulness, we'll see how beautiful sex is and why it must be guarded. Which is why God cares so much about sex. And you know, I've heard it said, and it, it's, it's nice on a bumper sticker, but it's just not biblically true that all sin is the same. It's not. There's something profound about sexual sin that puts it in a different category than every other kind of sin. Paul says it in his letter to the Corinthians. You know, there's all kinds of sin, but, but if you sleep with a prostitute, you're sinning against your own body, and that is its own kind of evil. Because don't you know that your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit and when you consummate biologically with another human being, you are consummating spiritually that person with Christ? God is hung up on sex. And when the world accuses us of that, we need to be able to explain why and not say no, He's not. He most definitely is. No wonder if sex is this beautiful picture of God's relationship with humanity and there's nothing else like that that goes so far in illustrating the way God relates to us, His creatures. No wonder sex is the first thing to go when God is revealing His wrath. Fine, if you're not going to worship me, then the, the illustration of our relationship is the first thing to go. 
And first, the, 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 the exclusiveness of my relationship with humanity. That's why we're to be monogamous. The monogamy of a marriage is a profound thing because it is telling the world that God is uniquely committed to humanity. He has a commitment to us as human beings made in His image that He hasn't even made with the angels. And He hasn't made with any other animal. Therefore, husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. And wives, likewise. All sexual perversion, then, is what we deserve if we are going to walk away from this amazing promised relationship with the Creator. Then the very thing that God made to illustrate our relationship is going to go. What about homosexuality? Love, commitment, monogamy. We're not against those things. But we are against the perversion of the illustration of God's relationship with us. And homosexuality twists it beyond recognition. So why does God say that homosexuality is an abomination? And it is. It's because, again, go with me here, homosexuality, if a heterosexual purity within a monogamous marriage is a picture of God's relationship with humanity, then homosexuality is a picture of humanity's worship of creation. Because in homosexuality, a man who loves another man sexually is a man who is worshiping himself. A woman who is engaged sexually with another woman is a woman who is worshiping herself, which is the climax of false worship. So when I say there's nothing wrong with homosexuality in and of itself, I don't for a moment suggest that it's good and okay and healthy and right. But it would be really helpful, I think, if we could explain why it's an abomination rather than just shouting that it's an abomination. Moving on to the third section. After Paul deals with God's wrath revealed through sexual perversion, he proceeds to this third section. And we don't need to spend much time on this uh, because Paul doesn't spend much time on it. Paul just throws everything else into this third category. He says, and everything else. Take a look at it. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, 
Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. This is not an exhaustive list of wickedness that flows out of a debased mind. But, but what Paul says is there, God gave them up to a debased mind. What is a debased mind? A debased mind is a mind that cannot understand that which is right, cannot understand that which is true, cannot accept that which is good. Sin has so twisted our hearts and our minds that we call good evil and evil good. We call light darkness and darkness light. And God says, well, this is the wrath, or Paul says, this is the wrath of God. He will just allow you to do that. And all of the wicked behavior that flows out of being unable to discern the difference between right and wrong, evil and goodness, will manifest itself in your lives. And I don't know about you, but even the unsaved world, I would say, hates the fruit of the debased minds that they have. The unsaved world laments the evil in the world and yet will not look at the source of that evil which is a debasement of their own minds, a refusal to worship God, and a refusal to prize the law of God for what it is, good and true and life-giving. So what's Paul's point in all of this? God's wrath is the withdrawal of God so that we will act as evil as we truly are to the measure that God withdraws Himself. So even now, God's common grace is at work in this country, but not as much as it was 10 years ago. And unless there's mass repentance, I will predict that God's common grace will recede further and we will see more and more expressions of wickedness that flow from a debased mind and dishonorable passions as God allows us to be gender confused and sexually perverse to corrupt the good things that he has given us. And this will happen until we collapse under the weight of our own sinfulness because the, no society can stand under the weight of the sinfulness of human beings. And I think it's very likely that that could happen in our lifetime. And when our society, our civilization, is in those death throes, either people will look to the church for a lifeline, or they will look to consume the church and take the church down with it. So be ready for both. A great number of people will come to faith and a great number of Christians will be persecuted unto death. Who can save us from the wrath of God? Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he came. He came because this is not good news. We're going to share in the Lord's table, and I'll talk a little further at that time about the fact that God, Jesus Christ carried our sin in his body and received the full wrath of God so that we don't have to. 
Let's pray.